Open your Bible, please. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy, chapter number 6 in your Bible. Deuteronomy, Deuteo, the first part of that means two or second. And so the rest of the word means law. So it's the second law. It's the second giving of the law. The book of Deuteronomy is where Moses stood before the children of Israel. He's at the end of his days, and he gives the children of Israel the law for the second time. Much of it is a repetition of what has already been given in the book of Exodus and Numbers and so on. Now, will you stand with me as we read from the Word of God today, Deuteronomy chapter number 6. To the Jewish people, this was the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This was their most familiar passage of Scripture had you lived in ancient Israel. Chapter 6 and verse 4, hear, O Israel. Moses did the same thing I do. He said, listen to me when he's preaching, didn't he? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. We just sung that. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on the gates. And in verse 12, then beware lest you forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. Thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> in 1970, the United States fired a rocket to the moon with three astronauts in it. It was, not, it was called Apollo 13. Apollo 13 has become very famous in our annals of space history and space flight because an oxygen canister exploded on board the spacecraft just as they were about to enter the moon's atmosphere. They would have been the third crew to walk on the moon, but it was not to be the oxygen explosion, the oxygen canister exploded, did serious damage to the spacecraft, and so they began the ordeal of trying to bring them home without losing our astronauts. A movie was made of it, and uh, you've, it's played often on television and so on now, and there's a famous line in the movie, and the line is this, Houston, we've got a problem. Well, that's not exactly what the astronaut said. That was modified for the movie. The astronaut actually said, Houston, we've had a problem here. Either way, it was the acknowledgement of a, a, very, a very serious problem. This past week, John Roseman was coming through town. Uh, most of y'all are probably familiar with John. He's been here two or three times. John Roseman is a leading author I would call John Roseman the leading uh, person today in all of America on rearing children, on raising kids. 
His books have sold in the multiplied millions. He writes a column that appears every day, or once a week rather, in newspapers all across America. He is a household name among the people who are concerned about family and child rearing. And I had the privilege of coming to know John, and so uh, Clayton and Kent and I went to lunch with him and talked to him about an idea that we're trying to formulate and work through here where we would really put a, a major, major emphasis upon the rearing of children and parenting uh, here in the church, a new approach to it, if you will. So John is coming in January for a two-day seminar, and if you're a young parent or a parent with children especially, you cannot miss that. This man is absolutely the authority, and he's as biblical as he can be in his approach to rearing children. And we went to the restaurant, and I recognized that I had a person there that I could learn from, and I didn't have my pen and paper with me, so I got my napkin, and there it is. I filled it up with notes because I wanted to hear from this man. I wanted to pick his brain, as it were, because I knew I could learn something being in his presence. And John said, well, if you guys are trying, if you're serious about trying to start a family ministry in your church, he said, let me tell you, we've got a problem. There's very little difference, and I'm quoting John Roseman now, there is very little difference in the children of evangelical Christian parents and the children who attend mainline churches or who are secularists. John says, we've got a crisis in the Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical churches. We claim to be different, but the results of our parenting is not faring very well. What do I mean we have a problem in raising children today in the homes of Christians? Well, here are seven ways that we have a problem. We have obedience and respect issues. John says our children don't obey us any better than they do in the homes of secular parents that use liberal child-rearing methods. Secondly, he said the percentage of male children addicted to video games and pornography is no different among Christ professing Christian families and non-Christian families. Underperformance in school is at epidemic levels. The number of children on medication for ADHD doesn't differ in evangelical and conservative circles than it does in secular circles. The percentage of our teenagers and young people who are sexually active is about the same. So is the use of drugs and alcohol. And the rates of cutting and suicide are not appreciably different in Bible-believing evangelical churches than in the secular world. So the question, the issue is we've got a serious problem in our families. Our families are in crisis mode, literally, across America. Now, when I say we, I don't just mean the Florence Baptist Temple, though I certainly include us, but I mean the whole evangelical world of today, the people who say, we believe the Bible, we believe that we ought to 
use the Bible as the guidelines for every facet of our life. The people who claim to be born again, spirit-indwelled people, we are not doing any better parenting our children than are the people who don't even believe in God, according to John Roseman. Now, he has a lot of data that I won't go into, but he says there's a crisis in the, quote, evangelical community about rearing the children. So the question becomes, why? And it's very simple. The answer is not hard to find. It's that Christians are conforming to the same values, the same priorities, and the same practices as is the secular world. In other words, Christians don't think any differently than the people who don't even claim the faith. You see, I've recognized this for years, and it it burdens my heart that people can come to church, they can sit, they can attend Sunday school, they can be very regular, they can even come Sunday night and Wednesday night, they can be involved in the church program. But once we walk out the door, we don't live our lives appreciably different from the people who don't even come. And that's not the Christian life at all. That's almost a practical atheism. To come and learn about it, then never to put it into practice is absolutely meaningless, isn't it? So, Houston, we have a problem. No Florence Baptist Temple and the larger Christian community around us, we also have a problem. You see, God has a plan. And that really I could entitle the message today, God has a plan. God has a plan, by the way, for everything. And when you read your Bible, it's not just a book about religion. It's a book about government. It's a book about family. It's a book about economics. It's a book about history. It's a book that encompasses every facet of life. And the Bible says itself that it is sufficient to train us to be able to handle all of life's problems. And so we, we downgrade our Bibles when we think that the Bible is only a book about spirituality in, of some type. No, the Bible is the book that God has given us that contains His plans for life itself and all the, 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 the events that we're going to face in our lifetime. Now, it may not directly address it. it the Bible doesn't tell you how to go and buy a new car. It's not going to tell you that you need to go buy a certain brand of car or whatever. But the Bible is going to tell you certain principles about making large purchases. It's very clear about that. And so even if I go and do something as everyday, normal, secular as buying a new car, then there are biblical principles I ought to be thinking about before I go and make that purchase. The Bible is the book for life, ladies and gentlemen. God has a plan. He has a plan for everything. And part of his plan is that God's people, you and me, that we have, that we are to be distinct from the world around us, that we are to be different than the unsaved man. We're to even be different from the nominal, marginal, professing Christian. And that's where we have lost it in the evangelical community in my in my opinion, and that is that 
we, we talk about salvation, and last week I explained to you in detail salvation in three tenses. I was saved at a time. I am being saved. Sanctification, and I will be saved someday, taken from the world into heaven. That's glorification. And we, do, we talk a lot about salvation because we know that salvation is essential. We know that Christ came and died on the cross for the sins of every man and woman, boy and girl who ever lived, that God loves us and that salvation is by his grace through faith and not anything that we can do. And we want to herald that and proclaim that every time we walk into the pulpit. We want to give an invitation and invite people to come to that salvation and receive it freely. Over and over, 800 times the Bible says, come unto me. Come, 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 come. And so every Sunday, I give the invitation, come to the cross. Come to Jesus, if you will. There's nothing more important than us telling people that they must be saved. But in the same breath, ladies and gentlemen, we must also tell them that if you are a Christian, God has a plan for the rest of your Christian life. And it doesn't end with you getting baptized or making a profession of faith. That God's plan for you and me is sanctification, that we grow, that we become holy, that we walk godly, that we live righteously, that we be the people of God so that we can be salt and light to the world around us. And that message, for whatever reason, is not being heard. Do you think that's not scriptural? Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2. And if you don't know another verse of Scripture, pick up on that one. Romans 12 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's plan will renew your mind. You will think differently than the people around you. Don't be conformed to the world, but be changed, be transformed by a renewed mind, a new way of thinking. John 17, 11, Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, gathers his disciples, and he said, look, fellas, you're in the world, but you are not of the world. You are to be distinct. Christians are to be different. Christians are to live a lifestyle and have a thinking process, a philosophy of life that differs from the people of this world. Let me meddle a little bit. I do it kindly. Why would we buy a child, an 11-year-old child, a cell phone? Why would we do that? Is that a wise decision? Two clicks away from the vilest things humankind has ever imagined. Two clicks in the hand of an emotionally immature human being who is being tantalized and pulled by everything in his culture. Why would we do that? God has a plan for everything. Everything. God has intricately designed the working of the whole universe. The sun has its course. The moon has its course. 
the stars and the planets are accurate to the second. We can set the watch by the sun, the moon, and the stars. We, can, we know what the calendar, when the calendar is going to turn because God has a plan for every little star, every moon, every single comet, every body that's out there in that universe. God has a plan. God has a plan for nations. Many scriptures apply to governing. God has a plan for his church. And the whole New Testament virtually is written to instruct churches and in how they are to operate, how they are to function, what ought to be their mission, their goals, their vision, their plan, their modus operandi. God, of course, has the plan has a plan for every individual, beginning with salvation, sanctification, glorification. We've talked about that. And God has a plan for the family. First of all, listen to me, hear me, as Moses said. The family is the first priority institution of all. There are three divine institutions the Bible teaches us. The first one is the family, formed in Genesis chapter 2 in your Bible. Almost the first page of the Bible tells us God's plan for the family. A man and woman are to be married. They are to become one flesh, a male and a female. The Scripture is so clear, so simple on it. That's God's plan for marriage. And they're to stay married until death doth part them, according to the Scripture. That's God's plan there, you see, for the family. Genesis 2, 24. Now, when I say it's God's priority, what do I mean? Well, there are three divine institutions. The first one is the family. Genesis chapter 9, it's the state. He gives authority even for someone to take another human's life in the event of murder. And then we come to the New Testament, and God has a plan for his church. And so there are three divine institutions, the hospital, the school, uh, the bank. Those are not divine institutions. Those are human institutions. Three God-ordained institutions, family, state, government, and church, and that's all. Because those are the three foundations of our life as a human race. And the priority of those two, God's priority is not the state, and it's not the church even. God's priority is the family. Now, don't forget that. It, the priority institution in the mind of God is the, the family. What do I mean by priority? Well, you see the word prior in priority, which means to come before, to come before something in time or in order or in importance. The family comes before the state and the church in time and in order and in importance in the mind of God. And the family begins with marriage. And so marriage is the cornerstone. It's the foundation of the family. It is the becoming of a family. I talked to a young woman a few years ago. I've used this illustration because it was so clear. She said to me, we've been married now for about three years, and we're ready to start our family. I said to her, wrong. 
You started your family when you said, I do. You don't have to have children to have a family. A man and a woman, Genesis 2, 24, become God's ideal of the family. And when the children come, the family grows. And when the children leave, the family uh, uh, shrinks a little bit. But you're still a family. It takes a man and a woman, Genesis 2, 24. That's a family. It begins with marriage. And just as in my physical health in my body today, it be, my health begins at the cellular level. The microbiologist takes a DNA sample, and he looks at one little cell, and he can determine a great deal about the health of my entire body. And as my health depends upon the health of the cells that make up the body, so the nation and the church depend upon the health of the family, the cell, to determine the health of the nation and the health of the church. As goes the family, so goes the nation, is the old quote that you have all heard about. God cares about your family. Now, let that soak in. That is so simple. I almost said, everybody knows that, but I don't know if we do or not. Hear me today. God cares about your family. He loves your family. He has a divine plan for your family. Number two, the priority in the family is the husband and wife relationship. The priority in the family is the husband and wife relationship, not the children. That's where we're going so far off course today in America. Here's my napkin, and I got the little drawing here that John Roseman gave me. I'll give him credit for it. And John said, draw a cross on your napkin. And so I drew the cross. And he said, over on one arm of the cross, do you all have a cross up there? There, there you go. Y'all wake up. Okay. On one side, put husband and wife, and on the other side, put Parent and child. Y'all want to draw that on the edge of your program there? I don't want you to forget that. And then underneath, put the percentage of time that you spend with each. Write down what is the percentage of time that husbands and wives are spending together, that you and your spouse are spending together in your family. And on the other arm of the cross, write the percentage of time that you spend with your children, parent, child. John says in his seminars, when he gets feedback from everybody, it's about 80 or 90% to 10 or 20%. We're spending our time. Our whole focus has become our children. Now, your marriage, your husband or wife, your spouse is the closest the most intimate relationship on earth, not the parent-child. The marriage is the longest-lasting one. It's from the vows at the altar until the day that you pass away. The child is going to come, and the little baby comes into the family like we talked about a moment ago, but 18, 20, well, that's changed, hasn't it? 30, 35 years later, you finally get them out of there. See, that's part of the problem, Houston. 
We got 30-year-olds sitting in the basement playing video games. They have two college degrees, but they can't find a job. I mean, we're in a mess in America with our families, are we not? So you might want to copy that down, and maybe it will help you. What percentage of time do you spend with your husband or wife vis-a-vis what period of time are we focusing on the children? And we are focusing on the, the priorities are so out of whack. I mean, if it were 50-50, but really it probably ought to be even higher than that. The personal priorities for us in life, they don't have anything to do really with parenting per se, just the application of them does. For example, what did Jesus say our priority is? He quoted Deuteronomy 6. He quoted it in Matthew 22. What did he say? The, per, the personal priority. My priority, your priority, everybody's priority in the building who calls himself a Christian. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first commandment, first in importance, first in order, first in everything. So God is the first priority. Second priority, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my closest neighbor? I've got some people who live on either side of me, across the street and behind me. But do you know who's the closest neighbor I have? She's sitting right there. Her name is Norma. She's the closest neighbor and or relationship that I'm to have on this earth. So God says, God first, neighbor second, and the first neighbor is spouse. If you don't think that's true, write down Ephesians 5 and 28. You say, I don't know if I accept that my spouse is my neighbor. Okay, then we won't approach it from that way. We'll approach it from another angle. Ephesians 5 and 28, husbands, love your wife as you love your own body. Is that a pretty high priority, men? Husbands, love your wife as you love yourself. And so Jesus established a priority. God first, neighbor second, which would include my wife. And then thirdly, obviously, our children. And since the 1960s, America's changed. John, in his discussion, and I'm quoting from that conversation because I'd planned another message, and I thought, no, this is so absolutely relevant. How could I help people more on a Mother's Day than to just preach to them on what God's priorities and His plan is for their family? And John said it began in the 60s with some psychologists who wrote books, and people bought those books on parenting, but those people did not have a biblical philosophy at all. They had a very secularist philosophy, Dr. Spock. And in recent days, Dr. Phil, and it's a whole parade in between of psychologists who tell us how to order our families, how to rear our children, how to have marital relationships. And America buys those books and listens to them, and America's forgetting what God said. Deuteronomy 6 and 9, beware lest you forget the Lord. Beware lest you forget the Lord and you accept ungodly counsel. You accept human wisdom rather than the wisdom of Almighty God. 
And so since the 60s, these psychologists said, if we're going to do a good job parenting, we've got to be child-centered, the child-centered parenting philosophy, which means the child is the most important member of the family, that mom and dad basically almost forget about each other, and they focus all their attention upon this little guy. Now, at first, it takes just about all the attention, doesn't it? He's, he's, um, he's just doing two or three things. He's sleeping and eating, and uh, you're cleaning up afterwards that. And that's, that's about what life involves for a while. But then it begins to, he begins to learn about life. But the sad thing is, hear me, hear me, folks. I'm trying to help you. Parenting has taken priority over our marriages. In the average family, parenting takes precedence over us, uh, uh, our relationship with each other. For years, I've used a little slogan, and I say it to you again today. The best way to be a good mother is to be a good wife to your husband. And the best way to be a good father to your child is to be a good husband to your wife. That the marital relationship, if it can stand strong, if we have such unity, such a one flesh relationship, that that child comes to dad and says, dad, what about this? And then later he goes to mom and says, mom, what about this? And he gets the same answer. He gets the same priority. He gets the same emphasis. He or she are, are finding out that mom and dad are one in what they tell us then it adds such authority to the, to the relationship of the parent to the child. Dr. Phil's on television teaching people about family life. He says in a blended family the, that the biological parent should be the only one who does the discipline. Biological family, in other words, Blended family, she has a child, but the husband can't touch the child in terms of discipline. He's not to discipline the child. He's to call her. You know what we just did? We just drove a wedge between the husband and the wife. And then we wonder why we have a higher divorce rate with the second marriages than we did with the first. See, we violate God's principles without thinking through what we're being told. So God has a priority. His priority is the family. The priority in the family is the husband and wife relationship. Doesn't mean to neglect your children, obviously. You know that's not what I'm saying. And then there's a third priority, and that is the priority of the parent is to rear the child with a biblical worldview. Now, hear me. Hear me, hear me clearly. The highest priority of the worldly parent for their child is achievement. We want you to excel in sports, in academics, in whatever the child's interested in, equestrian, horseback riding, or fishing, or whatever it may be. We want you to excel. We want you to be an achiever, and we'll be proud of you. Now, we all want our children, obviously. It goes without saying to excel. That's Achievement is not the highest priority 
in the home of a biblical, biblical thinking, a biblically thinking parent. What is it? It's character. You want to raise children who have godly, righteous, honest, loving character. If my child has the right kind of character, the achievement will kind of take care of itself most of the time anyhow. But how many times have we seen the high achievers with no morality? Look at the NBA and Major League Baseball and NFL athletes, college athletes. Just read the sports pages about the Gamecocks. Four or five of our hottest recruits every year get kicked off the team because of some sort of moral infraction. High achievers, low character. Parent, I cannot emphasize it more. Focus on your child's character more than their achievements. We focus on their achievements because we get a lot of ego benefit from that ourselves, don't we, if we be honest? Focus on their character. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he tells us how to achieve that character. Deuteronomy chapter number 6 and verse number 7, and thou shalt... Now, in my Bible, I had a highlighter. I had a yellow highlighter, so I highlighted the verbs here. So you may not have a highlighter, but you have a pen or pencil, so circle them in your Bible. And thou shalt teach them first diligently unto thy children. And secondly, thou shalt talk about them Teach the children. Talk to the children. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and so I circle walk, and when you lie down, that'd be the last thing at night, and when you rise up, first thing in the morning. And then he says, bind them as a sign upon your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Reminders that they have with them throughout the day. And verse 9, write them, write them upon the post of thy heart. Let me review them. Teach them, talk of them, walk them, lie down with them, rise up with them, and write them. In other words, we're talking about training children to know right from wrong, not just theoretical doctrine that we learn in Sunday school and in the preaching services of our church, but, but here's what I'm trying to say, that your whole lifestyle is saturated with this idea of rearing my children biblically, rearing them in a loving home that in every part of that home, the Scripture and the glory of God is the, is, is, is the ultimate get, uh, goal. That my whole, my whole vision of parenting is saturate these children, saturate their character, their minds with the truth of God to build godly character into them. You think about those words, talk to them. So when we walk out the door and get in our car this morning, 
have a conversation about the message you just heard from God's Word with your children or at the table today or somewhere this week. Kids, do you remember what we learned in church this Sunday? When you walk with them, we don't walk anymore. You know what we do? We drive. Some of you mothers, you are the taxi service for kids. You go to 20 different places every week with your children. What a wonderful opportunity when you're walking with them or driving them in the car. Teaching time, training time with our children. Do you see what I'm saying? Bedtime, getting up time, all the time. If this isn't our priority, it will get lost in the shuffle of our busyness in the world of today. And how do you teach a child? I said to John on my napkin here, I wrote it down. I said, John, well, how, then how do you teach? Children are naturally selfish. How do we teach a child not to be selfish, to love others, to love God with all of his heart and to love others as himself? And he said a surprising answer, so I wanted to share it with you, and I'll quit. John Roseman said, Bill, the way you teach a child to love other people is you have to teach him to be unselfish. Well, how do you do that, John? He said, here's how you do it. You teach them manners. It all begins with manners. It begins with respect. It begins with the common courtesies. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. Open the door. It begins with, I, I, I told the teachers the other night part of this because it really been on my heart. I'm in the elevator over here at MUSC, the old Carolina's hospital. Four or five people in here, guys here with a wheelchair. Elevator door opens down in the lobby. And there's a guy standing right in the door. And he can't get in and we can't get out. And there's a guy in a wheelchair. Did anybody ever tell that guy, look, that is rude, that's discourteous? I watch people, even at the church, and it's going to get real personal, and we have a dinner of some kind, and the first few people in line, they heap up their plate like, uh, does anybody ever think about the guy in the back of the line? Because that's usually me. I mean, come on, man. Don't be a hog. You don't, you're not showing love. You're not showing respect. I mean, it comes into all these things. Teaching, just teaching people respect. But have you ever sit across the table from some guy chewing with his mouth open? I want to say to him, look, you sit there and watch me, and I'm going to chew with my mouth open. I want you to see how enjoyable this really is now. I come down the street. There's trash bags laying in the road. Somebody didn't teach somebody to respect other people. Here's the classic. I promise you my hand on the Bible. This happened to Norma and me this week. I got real generous and said, Norma, we want to go out to eat at a fine restaurant. So we went down the street to this little Mexican restaurant. And I said, you can have anything on the menu, $5.99 and down, honey. And so we are in the Mexican restaurant. Promise you, because we talked about it. There was a girl walked in, about 20 years old, and her boyfriend sat down in the booth about from 
oh, me to the drum over there from us. And our food hasn't come yet. She ordered, and she made a call on her cell phone because I could see her from my angle. And then she set the, the cell phone up with a napkin holder and turned on the speakerphone. And the whole restaurant had to listen to that phone. No, I didn't say that right. That stupid phone. For the whole meal. And she's oblivious. There are other people in the room. Courtesy. Respect. And if we don't start teaching them that down here, they're going to act like that when they're 20. They just don't know. Now, so training a child to have a biblical worldview is to teach them to put God first and other people second. And that's why we're having family camp. We're going to really do what we can to help our families here. The children teach them about living in a Babylonian culture from the book of Daniel a regular type kids camp curriculum. But then we're going to say, parents, y'all come on too. And we're going to focus on marriage relationships, and then we're going to focus on rearing our children, raising kids, parenting, whatever you want to call it. We're going to focus on that for three nights in June, June 17, 18, 19. The culture is so hostile to everything Christian now that we're going to do everything we can to help you raise your children. We can't raise your children. We don't want to raise your children. But we want to help you raise children that will know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and will carry on the Christian faith. Will you bow your head with me in prayer today, please?